That's a good song. I heard some Isaiah 40 in there. I don't know if y'all are still working on your summer memory challenge. Isaiah 40. I would encourage you to do that. And uh, when you do, think about that song because it spoke to some of the things that you'll see in Isaiah 40. Um, this morning, before we get started, I have some really exciting news. Um, we began a process, uh, really, a year ago now, when we officially began as elders, considering uh, the transition to a new worship pastor here, here at Melanie Park Church. We formed a search team who's been together for several months now, and uh, through that process, we've had a consistent prayer that the elders have prayed, that the search team has prayed, and anybody who's asked about this, we've asked you to pray. And that prayer is, Lord, would you consistently confirm or clearly direct as we seek to follow your lead. And that's been our prayer over and over again. And we've had a, a young man by the name of Brian Beatty, who has been through the process now about, we're about 12 weeks into the interview process with him. And we can say very uh, confidently that the Lord has clearly confirmed in this process. Last week, we had Brian in for an on-site interview with the search team, and the elders had an a interview with him as well. And once that was done, we met the following Wednesday, and the uh, search team uh, unanimously recommended to the elders who unanimously agreed to bring Brian in as our official candidate as youth pastor, or not youth pastor, worship <laughs> pastor, worship pastor. So if Bruce hears this recording, <laughs> we need to make sure that he's, he's gone and we've replaced him. That's what we've done. <laughs> worship pastor. Um, but the process is not over yet because we want to bring him back probably, uh, not probably, August 10th, 11th, and 12th. It's three weeks from now. He will come in with his wife, Ashley, and spend the weekend with us where you as a church family get to know him, interact with him, and be a part of the process as we do a vote of affirmation the following weekend. And so please make plans, if you can, to be here, be involved. We'll give you more details each week. I'll kind of introduce him a little bit more to you. He and his wife, Ashley, uh, they have three girls, five, three, and one. Um, she's from Richardson, uh, Texas, grew up in, in that area. They met in Dallas and then were involved in the village church there with Matt Chandler. Sweet family, uh, sincerely love the Lord, and we're excited about how the Lord's been directing us. So mark your calendars, and we would love for you to be a part of that with us. So if you would, go ahead and turn to uh, Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. This morning, uh, as we continue our study of Acts, looking at the history of the early church, when we come to Acts chapter 6, we're going to encounter a significant transition in Luke's history of the early church. It, it really marks a new era for the early church as the church begins to move into some uncharted territory. It moves beyond the the boundaries of Jerusalem. And we began to see some of that last week when we learned that, that there were those who were bringing the sick and the lame from the surrounding communities around Jerusalem into the city. The word is spreading. And the message of the gospel is entering into some new territory. But right alongside the increased popularity is the reality of increased persecution. The religious leaders have moved from this place of just kind of being a little bit irritated 
to being completely irate. To the point that in the last time that the apostles were brought before the council, they were ready to kill them. They wanted to slay them, to put an end to this once and for all. And were it not for a man named Gamaliel, the story of Acts could have ended in chapter 5. But because he spoke up and tried to convince his overzealous peers of a different option, he, he talks to them about how the fact that at that point in time, the, the crucifixion was really only a few months ago. The apostles uh, had created quite a stir, and yes, that was unsettling. And, and yes, th- there was really too much attention on Jesus as far as the religious leaders were concerned. But Gamaliel steps in and says, look guys, this is not the first time something like this has happened. Other people have made miraculous claims, and those same people had a large number of followers, much like the disciples. But he goes on to explain that when their leader was eventually killed, then all those followers eventually grew silent. His wisdom seems to be, look, you've got to give this more time. You're getting all worked up about nothing. If you'll just wait, like we've always seen, it's going to blow over like all the rest. He tells them, look, if this is not from God, it's not going to last. But he also goes on and says, if it is from God, it can't be stopped. Now, with that in mind, looking back at chapter 6, my translation begins by saying, now, at this time. Yours may say, in those days. That phrase is important because it becomes a marker of transition. What Luke is saying here is that there's been an episode of time that is different than what has been talked about up to this point. So now, instead of a few months since the crucifixion, we're into a few years since the crucifixion. In fact, with some of the details of the events that follow, we're about five years since Pentecost at the beginning of chapter 6. So I want you to think about that. In light of the counsel from Gamaliel, Jesus, the leader, was killed. But now five years later, the church is still growing and going strong. Instead of the followers going silent, they continue to preach the gospel with boldness. So do you think they're more or less concerned than they were five years ago? It's obvious, right? I mean, the tension in Jerusalem at this point is continuing to grow. It's like a tinderbox of emotion. I don't know that it's all that different than what we see in Israel today. The tinderbox of emotion between the the Palestinians and and the Jews. Back last week, there were over 200 rockets that were shot from Gaza into Israel in one day. That conflict, that tension between those two ethnic groups, I think is very similar to what is happening in Jerusalem between Israel the Christians, and the Jews. It's a pressure cooker of emotions, and it just feels like at any moment this thing could blow. And I believe that same pressure was also being felt inside the church. In fact, I think that Satan wants to use cultural tension to create Christian division. 
Satan wants to use cultural tension to create Christian division. He wants that ethnic turmoil to influence the Christian church. Now, just stop and think about how relevant that is to the world that we live in today. Isn't Satan trying to do the very same thing? Taking all the tension that exists in our culture to bring division in the church? Racial tension, gender identity, political alliances. You see, very often, Satan's best weapon against the church and the world is bringing the world into the church. Using the tension of the culture to bring division among the saints. It was relevant to what was happening in Acts chapter 6, and it is just as relevant to what is happening in our world today. So we really need to pay attention to what this passage has to say because there will be some clear things that we can take from it and apply to our lives. Let's pray before we look at it together. Lord, thank you that your truth is timeless, that you knew as you breathed out these words and proclaim this truth that would be passed down from generation to generation, that there would be situations at different times in different cultures that would have the same core truth that we would need to understand. This being no exception this morning. So Lord, would you take uh, the words that you spoke through your apostles and apply it to the lives of the saints in this church this morning, that they would penetrate deeply into our heart that they would affect the way we live and see life so that when we walk out of this place, we are different than when we walked in. We know that the enemy wants to do everything he can to bring distraction and disruption to what you intend. So, Lord, we know that greater is you who is in us than he who is in the world. So would you do a great work in our lives this morning? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn to, uh, you're already there. Acts chapter 6. Let's look at verse 1 together. It says in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, as I said, this is a significant transition in the life and ministry of the church. So I want us to be clear on what we know to be true up to this point. The first thing we know to be true is that the church is growing. In chapter 2 and then again in chapter 5, we see that it says the, the Lord was adding to the number day by day. Those who are being saved. And that's been continuing through our story of Acts. That small group of 120 disciples has now grown into several thousand new believers. The other thing we know is that the apostles have been preaching to primarily a Jewish audience. That's why when Peter addresses the crowd, he calls them men of Israel. He talks about our father Abraham. So what that tells us that, is that all these new believers share a common Jewish heritage between them. So this is basically a Jewish Christian church 
not exclusively, but primarily, because really the mission to the Gentiles has not yet officially begun. So for all intents and purposes, this is a Jewish Christian church. And then finally, we know that up to this point, the church has done a really good job of caring for those in need. We learned back in chapter 4 that there was not a needy person among them. That all the needs were being met because people were taking their property and possessions and selling them so that they could care for those who needed something. It was for the common good. We learned that they had placed all those things at the apostles' feet and then they distributed to those who were in need. But now, several years later, some things have changed. Within this Jewish population, there are two clearly distinct cultures. Two ethnically diverse people. We learn that the first is what Luke calls the native Hebrews. These are the ones who are lifelong residents of Jerusalem. That's their home. Their worship is always centered around the temple, which is central to their city life. And in their community, they all speak Hebrew as their native language. And so I think I would consider these the insiders. This is easily the largest majority of believers in the Christian church at that time, the native Hebrews. But right alongside the native Hebrews, you have what Luke calls the Hellenistic Jews. These are the outsiders of the early church. They moved into Jerusalem from other parts of the world. Their worship life is centered around the synagogue because they didn't have a temple where they came from in the other parts of the world. They also have a very distinct language. They spoke Greek. So inside the growing Christian church is a clash of two very distinct cultures. People who share a faith in Christ, but are somewhat segregated into separate communities. Like us, they cluster around people who are most like them. They have a a common language, a a common worship experience, a common life experience based on where they grew up. But as the church continues to grow, we learn that the the majority culture overlooks the needs of the outsiders. And please understand, this is not a deliberate neglect. Very simply, it's that the needs of this now very large church, several thousand members by this time, has expanded beyond what the 12 apostles can manage on their own. It's a good problem to have. But Satan is trying to use it against them. You see, Satan is using this issue as a distraction. It's his effort to derail the entire mission of God through his church because if the apostles can stay busy dealing with all of these inside issues then they'll stop proclaiming the message to those on the outside in other words silencing the teachers will prevent the truth from advancing silencing the teachers will keep the truth from advancing it's really an evil strategy and thankfully i believe that Apostles knew what was happening. They didn't take the bait. They say it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And please understand, 
they're not saying we don't want to serve people. They're not saying we don't have time for the needy or that's somehow below us. What they're saying is that neglecting the word of God is what is undesirable because here's the reality. As the church has grown and developed, they can no longer do both. They just simply can't do both with a church that size. And they know that God did not call the apostles to care for every single need within the life and ministry of the church. He called them to preach the word of God. So instead of being the solution, the apostles called the church together in order to find a solution. Let's look at what they did beginning in verse 3. They say, select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Prominus, Nicholas, who was a proselyte from Antioch. And they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The apostles turned to the church and say, choose seven men. And notice they didn't say, let's draw them out of a hat. This is very purposeful. They said, look for seven men with certain qualities. They need to be known for their integrity. And I I believe what the church was able to do is look around them to see men who were already involved and active in the life and ministry of the church. They weren't waiting on someone to tell them what to do, to appoint them into a position. When they saw a need, they were already actively involved in serving that need. Which is why we often talk about here at Melanie Park that we don't want to ask men to serve in the positions of leadership who are not already serving in the life of this church. We want men who are shepherding this body before they were ever asked to be an elder. We want men who are involved in compassionately caring for those in need before they're ever asked to serve as a deacon. Demonstrating certain qualities before given a certain title. And I believe this is what's happening in the early church as well. The apostles asked the congregation to to pay attention to two primary qualities. One, that they must be of good reputation, and two, be full of the Spirit. In other words, these men must be above reproach and spiritually discerning. Now, when we looked at Titus, we talked about how being above reproach doesn't mean that they no longer make mistakes. (laughs) Those people don't exist, okay? So we can take that one off the table. It, It means that these men have spiritual integrity, Men whose reputation does not call their faith into question. They are a consistent witness for Christ in a variety of settings. And how they love their wife. And how they lead their family. And how they treat their co-workers. They're consistent. The same person in all those situations. But it goes on and says these men must also be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. So that means that they must have spiritual discernment and not just worldly wisdom. Men who are 
faithful to the word and to prayer. See, these are not men who always have an answer for everything. These are men who just know where to go when they need an answer for something. They're men of the word. They're men of prayer. They seek the Lord for what they do not possess on their own. They use God's word to give guidance to others, not their own opinion. I believe what the apostles have identified here are what I would consider to be the two most important qualities in any spiritual leader in any church. Number one, that they be humble. And number two, that they be teachable. They ask for men who are humble and teachable, men of spiritual integrity, spiritual discernment, not based on training and accomplishments. Nobody turned in a resume, okay? There was not a search committee looking at applications. This was somebody who was already living this out in the life of the church, and they had humble dependence upon the Lord as they did. Because keep in mind, these are men who are going to be dealing with people, in particular widows, in some very vulnerable situations. And so they needed men that they could trust to do the right thing. Now, we don't know how long it took the church to come to this decision, but what we do know is that when they did, there was unanimous agreement. According to the Scripture, no dissenters. Nobody uh, objected to the men who were put forward. It was unanimous. All the church agreed about these seven men. And if you really stop and think about it, that's remarkable. Not just because of a church that size, but the issue that caused this discussion in the first place. This was a clash of two cultures in the early Christian church. Two groups segregated by very clear, distinct differences. But when they came together to solve this issue, it was a unanimous decision. I also want you to notice that every one of those names listed there in verse 5 is a Greek name. Every one of them is a Greek name. What that means is that the insiders, the native Hebrews, gave purpose and value to the outsiders by not ostracizing them as if their opinion didn't matter, but by elevating them into places of leadership and involvement in the life of ministry of the church. And as a result, unity was maintained and the mission of the church was preserved. They bridged a boundary of cultural differences and preserved the integrity of the gospel. Because when you think about it, isn't that what the gospel's all about? Weren't we all outsiders? Weren't we? Didn't sin at one time separate every single one of us from a life-giving relationship with God? Was there anything that you could do to cross that boundary on your own? No. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and dead people don't move. The Bible says that Jesus broke down the dividing wall. That he, those who were far off, those who were outsiders, were brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Through faith in Christ, we have been reconciled to God 
by no merit of our own. He made us insiders by drawing near to the outsider. I love what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. You can just write this down, but listen to what it says in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers, aliens, outsiders. You're fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into the dwelling of God in the Spirit. A unified church puts the power of the gospel on display. So, I want you to see that this is certainly no small event in the life of the church. The apostles maintained their commitment to preaching the truth of God's word. The church bridged cultural differences to care for those in need. And as we will see as the story continues, the gospel will now go viral to the uttermost parts of the world. Look at what happens in verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Since the word of God was spreading, the original translation would say that the word of God was growing. I actually like that better because when I think of something spreading, I think it seems kind of indiscriminate, you know, the path of least resistance. But when I think of something growing, it, it reminds me of something that has a, a purposeful development b- toward an, an intended outcome. The growing of the body, the growth that we see in nature. Uh, Paul tells the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but God causes the growth. You see, I believe that the growth of the church is a result of divine intervention. God causes the growth. It happens based on his divinely ordained plan. All this is happening, and and what we learn here now is that now new outsiders are coming to faith in Christ. Luke says a great many of the priests were coming to faith. Now, it's not hard to uh, miss here, and I want you to see the connection between what is happening here now with these priests and what had taken place in the church. And understand that these priests are not the wealthy elite, okay? So these are not the guys who are sitting on the religious councils, okay? Separated because of their wealth and prosperity. These are the commoners. These are the priests who serve within the temple, and they literally do the dirty work, okay? And and as a result, they're marginalized by the rich and wealthy leaders, They depend on the community for support. And it appears that the Christian community has embraced them. I personally believe that because they understood the importance of bridging boundaries within the church and caring for those in need, they were much more sensitive to those outside of the church where they could go and do the same. What was happening on the inside began to fuel a ministry to those who are on the outside. So once again... Satan's attempt to create discord is thwarted. He tried to use the tension that existed in the culture to create division within the life of the church. 
And even though Satan was not successful at that point in time, it doesn't stop him from continuing to try the same strategy generation after generation after generation, including our own. So we need to look at this passage and say, okay, what can we learn from what we see with the apostles and the disciples of the early church that might apply to us? How do we protect unity here at Melanie Park in a church that is filled with a world uh, of tension around us? What can we learn? Let me give you three things that I would encourage you to write down, to pray about, and to talk to each other about as you spend time thinking about this passage. The first one is this. Number one, make a commitment to look outside your circle. Number one, make a commitment to look outside your circle. See, it's very normal for people to gravitate towards others who are a lot like them. That's not abnormal. Shared interests, shared experiences is what bring people together. Your kids play together on the same baseball team. Or you live in the same neighborhood. Community built around the things you have in common is not a bad thing. But if we get too comfortable in our community, we can lose sight of the people who are trying to find a place to fit in. If we get too comfortable in our community, we can lose sight of the people who are trying to find a place to fit in. Our son Grant goes to a school that has a very close-knit community. It's a great school. We really love where he's at. But we're kind of the outsiders, (laughs) looking for a place to fit in a little bit. At the end of last year, they were getting ready for classes in the following uh, year. And they told the students that if you want to be in the art class, there's limited space, so you're going to have to act first and act fast. And so the way they described it is what you need to do to get approval to be, in one of these, to be in the art class is that you either need to have your parents call in or you need to find a teacher who knows your parents who can speak on their behalf. So automatically, that put the insiders at a great advantage <laughs> to the outsiders because they had relationships with all these teachers that we were just now getting to know. A few weeks later, I went and visited with the superintendent about the situation, and, and I was sincere. I said, look, I understand some of the challenges that you face in this school because I go to a church where I've been for over 30 years, and there are people in this church who have a long history of relationships with one another, and I know because I've talked to them how intimidating it can be for that visitor to walk in that door and be surrounded by people who have known each other for most of their life. And they're trying to figure out, how do we fit into that? So I I understand. And I told him, I said, when that's the reality, we don't need to consider the community that we have a bad thing. We just have to be intentional about those who are trying to find a place to fit in. Because if we're not, why would they want to stick around? So let me remind us again. Look outside your circle for those around you who are trying to find a place to fit in. Go out of your way. Reach out. Introduce yourself. Invite them into your home. You see, being friendly, let me be clear on this, being friendly is not a church growth strategy. Okay, That's not why we're doing this. 
we're doing it is because it's the biblical mandate for protecting unity that has been gifted to us by God. And we want to make sure that as we develop strong and loving community, we're always mindful of those who are trying to find a place to fit in. So look outside your circle. Second thing is, have a commitment to God's word as the foundation of biblical community. Make a commitment to God's word as a foundation to true biblical community. The apostles did not set truth aside in order to resolve their differences. In fact, they did just the opposite. They prioritized the truth as the basis of protecting biblical community. And I'm here to tell you that is not the pattern. That is not the pattern that we see happening in many of the Christian churches in America today. Instead, what we see happening is churches deliberately choosing to set truth aside in order to form more inclusive communities. And then they reintroduce truth and many times reinterpret truth to fit the new community. As a result, the church is no longer distinct in the world. Instead of being set apart, we blend right in. Instead of affirming truth, we blur the lines. But true biblical community is never, ever built on personal preferences. Never. You're not going to find it. True biblical community is built when we align our lives to the truth of God's Word. Trusting in Him way more than we trust ourselves. Because we believe that His design is perfect. And that there's goodness built into His design. And if we can just live accordingly, we experience the fullness of everything He intended. And so we trust in Him more than we trust ourselves. The church should always be an earthly picture of a heavenly reality. That's why the Bible says the church displays the manifold wisdom of God. True biblical community should put the gospel on display. A multi-generational, multi-ethnic, Jesus-loving people of God. That's the church. We've been rescued rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to a a new and different kind of kingdom. A kingdom centered around Christ and and shaped by His self-sacrificing love, which we have all devoted ourselves to live by that example. So look outside your circle. Be committed to God's Word. And then thirdly, make a commitment to be actively involved in the life and ministry of the church. Number three, make a commitment to be actively involved in the life and the ministry of the church. As gifted as the apostles were, God did not design them to do all the ministry within the early church. In fact, when those seven men were chosen, those seven men weren't the only men serving tables. They were just in charge to ensure that no one was overlooked. But the entire church was involved in the work of ministry. That's because, according to the Bible, every member is a minister. Every, minister, every member, every uh, regular attender, if this is your church home, you, according to Scripture, are a minister equipped by God to fulfill a purpose. And when the church fails to live this out, let me just tell you, 
when the church fails to live this out, we will crush the leaders under the burden of responsibility that was never intended to be theirs to carry. Scripture's clear. God designed the church to function like the human body, and every part matters. Every single person has a purpose and value in the life of the church. And we all know with our own bodies, when one part's not working, it affects everything, right? How many of you have ever injured or broken your big toe? It's your big toe. You got nine others. It can't be that big of a deal, right? Uh, But if you've ever injured your big toe, you, you know that it's hard to walk. You can't jump. And so you compensate on the other side, and the next thing you know, your knee and your hip and your back is sore, all because of a big toe. Well, that's the way God designed the body. Every part matters, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant those parts might be. We all need to be involved in the life and ministry of the church. You know, in a church our size, we should never, ever have to beg for a few volunteers when we have several hundred people who go to church here. doesn't make sense. And so this is a great time of year as we approach the fall to consider what you might do to get more involved in the life and ministry of the church. We've said this before, but let me tell you again, we believe that the best on-ramp into community in this church is a Sunday morning ABF. It's the first hour. It's what I call low-hanging fruit, okay? You don't have to work real hard to get this. It's right there. It's the first hour, right before the main service begins. It's great to get to know people in a smaller community where you can now begin to see people beyond just a high hello on Sunday morning. And as the fall approaches, I wrote about it in the back of the bulletin. There are some things that are coming that we want you to be mindful about. We're going to have sign-ups for small groups. So if you're not in a small group or your current small group doesn't work with your schedule anymore, we want you to sign up. Because we're convinced that we cannot build biblical community here at Melanie Park Church by showing up on Sunday for one hour and calling it good. Not going to happen. And so we want to provide opportunities for people to share life together, and that's what we believe the best way to do that is through our small groups. We're going to do a new class. We're calling it Membership Matters. We used to call it the Welcome Class. And if you're new to Melanie Park and you want to learn more, we invite you to come, and you'll see that being uh, uh, on the calendar here in a few weeks. But if you've been at Melanie Park for a long time and you're not a member, we changed the name for you. Because I was informed by somebody who fit that category who said, you know, we've been here for several years and it's kind of embarrassing to go to the welcome class. I said, okay, that's not a problem. We'll call it Membership Matters because membership matters. And we want you to be there. And so if that's not something you've done, we encourage you to do that. There are plenty of opportunities to get involved in the life of the church. And let me just say this. Being involved in the life and ministry is built around intentional relationships. So you calling somebody to say, hey, can we go grab lunch together is a work of ministry. As you spend time in the Word and you visit with somebody and say, you know, the Lord really said something in my time this morning. I'd like to share that with you. You are doing the work of ministry. It's all built on intentional relationships as you share your life with other people. So, As we enter into the fall, just 
consider ways to get more involved. Children's ministry, student ministry, small groups. Invite people over to your home. Look outside of your circle and, and find those who are trying to find a place to fit in, fit in and, and invite them. Invite them to be a part of that. Be committed to God's word so that when we talk about what it means to be a biblical community, we're not basing it on what the world says needs to be true. We've already got the roadmap, and it works. And so let's follow that faithfully. And just be involved. Be involved by getting to know people. Ministry is built around relationships, so we can start there. That's low-hanging fruit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and its relevance to our life today. We need to be reminded because we're forgetful people, and you know, know that because you repeat things over and over again in Scripture. You reveal things that are applying to different generations and different cultures, but it's the same truth. So, Lord, help us to take this passage to heart to realize that we live in a world that is filled with tension and our enemy wants to take that tension to create division in the church. And Lord, we want to fight against that just as adamantly as we see with the apostles and those early believers who despite all their differences found a way to solve an issue with complete unanimity, complete agreement, faithfully trusting in you and as a result, of caring for the outsiders in the church, they developed a heart and a ministry to the outsiders outside of the church. And they were brought near by the blood of Christ in whom we find forgiveness of sin. Father, thank you for that promise. We love you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.